1: You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. And this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports.
2: All right. We are psyched today, to use a technical term. We've got John Wertheim with us, executive editor of Sports Illustrated. He often joins us at the U.S. Open. He's a senior writer at the magazine. He's also got a new book, which is incredible. Glory days, the summer of 1984 and the 90 days that change sports and culture forever. It's on sale now. John, great to have you with us. All right, let's let's jump right in because this is one of those times and, and candidly, one of those conceits where you're like, yeah, that, that did happen. It's just incredible. I mean, since we are talking about business, the sports business changed so fundamentally that year. And I'm thinking especially about ESPN. I'm thinking about Jordan coming on the scene. As you look back on it, do you agree sort of the economic landscape changed for sports then, too?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's the uh, that was the big change this summer. And it wasn't this sort of a moment of social activism or it wasn't one of these moments that everyone can pinpoint. But you look back and this was the summer of Jordan where... He and his agent said, wait a second, I've got a lot of value here, and companies want to align with me. Never mind what I make from my NBA contract. I can make a lot more money by endorsing products, starting with a signature tennis shoe. I don't just want to be on a poster. I want my own shoe. That same summer, you had really the the rise of cable. ESPN was sold to ABC, and cable was really, people were realizing this was a force that was going to be here for a long, long time, you had, you know, Vince McMahon and and David Stern, and this was really, you know, some of this was in keeping, you know, this was in keeping with the the Reagan 80s and and the free market and and deregulation, and this was sort of the summer sports said, you know what, we're not a mom-and-pop industry. This is big business. This is big media. This is big tech.
1: See, I said I was not going to mention that in 84, the Detroit Tigers won the World Series. but So I'm not going to mention that part. What, what, what I am want to talk about is that that era, you saw a lot of the, uh, the old school players that we used to grow up with was starting to be phased out. And here comes that new era coming in. I guess that was a big moment in the shift in how we viewed sports out with the old and in with the new.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, again, this was, Jordan is kind of the centerpiece of the book, but we had a new look Olympics. And we had, again, we, we had this, this new look NBA commissioner, David Stern, a few, few weeks on the job, and he's sort of saying, you know, enough with the Dr. J model. We, we've got to align ourselves with, with youth and with globalization and with, with cable. We had Vince McMahon say, you know what, enough of these regional wrestling promotions. We need to consolidate all this. And sports really looked a lot different. I, you know, it, it sounds crazy to say it, but I mean, sports looked a lot different on Labor Day than it did on Memorial Day. And this was the summer that, again, there was this sort of awakening. Like you said, I mean, the, the old way of doing business is, is cute and quaint, and everybody has nostalgia for sort of this, the small world '80s sports. But there's a lot of value that hasn't been unlocked that we're going to unlock. That that really came about that summer of '84. Hey John, it's Mike Lynch up in Boston. Um, I, I had a front-row seat to a lot of these events you wrote about, and have great memories. Was there one seismic event from the summer of '84 that we're still feeling the aftershocks from? Uh, that's a great question, and I, I mean, I think there are a lot of them. I mean, the big one is Jordan. I think who, and I don't think he gets enough credit for this. I mean, we all still talk about what he did as a player and, and six rings, and uh, is he better than LeBron? But what people forget is what the athlete in a team sport looked like before Michael Jordan and what he did to athlete empowerment to athlete economics to leverage the talent has i I think he still hasn't gotten his full due and the other thing that just became clear to me was cable completely changed sports Mm -hmm. and in in the summer of 84 espn said you know wait a second Why are we paying to get on these cable systems? No no one wants cable if it doesn't have ESPN. We're the ones that bring value. We need to get a subscriber fee. We need to get money from the cable systems. completely turning the model on its head. And it started out as a few pennies a month. Right now, it's something like $7 a month. And the billions and billions and billions of dollars that ESPN got from these subscriber fees, that is what has enabled them to pay rights fees, which has made athletes wealthier. I mean, the... Cable has really done more than any force, I would argue, to prop up where sports are today. And, and cable really came of age that summer of '84.
2: John, talk to us about the Olympics, because the, those 84 games were critical, as you write in the book. You know, we're on the verge of a, we think, delayed Tokyo Olympics now. The Olympic movement certainly has had some fits and starts and some twists and turns between then and now. But but what did 84 mean and, and what does it portend for the Olympic movement?
3: In 72, you had the, the, the terrorist attack Mar the Games in in Munich. In 76 you had these wildly expensive overruns in Montreal that took decades for Montreal and Canada to pay off. In 80 you had a boycott. By 84 Newsweek had a cover story are the games dead? Yeah. I mean there there were thoughts that this might this might be the last summer olympics. And the LA games and Peter Ubrah took this this struggling sort of this sputtering olympic movement. And they probably benefited from the fact that there was a Soviet boycott. They had all of these sponsors. I mean, people of a certain age, like myself, still remember watching, because you got free Big Macs and fries whenever Americans got medals. Right. You had sponsorships. You had network revenue. You had no no drama, no terrorism. I mean, I mean the games were remarkably smooth. And the summer of 84 – a, the games had a surplus of like you know, more than 250 million in, in 1984 dollars. So economically, they were successful. It was feel good. It was ratings bonanza. It was the most watched programming in U.S. TV history at the time. And the Olympics really got this second win from the L.A. Games. And um, you know we, we remember it for you know Mary Lou Retton, Carl Lewis, Jordan. But the real hero of those Olympics was Peter Ubra.
1: You're talking to an auto racing nut, and you're talking about cable, and auto racing exploded thanks to ESPN. 1979, the Daytona 500, CBS, they went flag to flag. That's the first time that's ever happened live. And then all of a sudden, in 84, and in that era, ESPN picks up all these other NASCAR races, North Wilkesboro, Richmond, all the other stuff, and all of a sudden, NASCAR fans, racing fans in general, like, hey, This is like gold to us.
3: You know, ESPN, before it had the money to spend on NFL rights and on college basketball rights, it, you know, broadcast the America's Cup sailing. It was way, you're right, way into auto racing. It had Australian rules football. (laughs) And so while ESPN was gathering steam and, and gathering subscribers and trying to sort of get its balance sheets in order, ESPN did a ton to help these Niche sports And I I think that's part of ESPN That doesn't get told enough That while this network Was getting its finances in order And while they were trying to You know, ESPN was bleeding money For the first five years Really really until 1984 But while it was bleeding money It did so much To help popularize and, And prop up all these other sports While they were, you know Getting the war chest ready To start bidding on the NFL
0: The countdown has begun From May 14th to 16th
3: Uh, Hey, John, another Boston story up here. The Michael Jackson tour that summer, which was financed by Chuck Sullivan, the son of Billy Sullivan, who owned the Patriots, was really the start of the success, the current success of the New England Patriots due to the failure. And it's hard to believe that anybody could lose money on a Michael Jackson tour, but the Sullivan family found a way to do so. And uh, that, that still has a long tail, which is still wagging today. I, and I'm curious whether people, I mean, I didn't, I guess I kind of sort of knew this story, but I didn't know all the details. I mean, to me, this was one of the great sort of sports yards that Michael Jordan is the most, I mean, Michael Jackson is the most popular performer in the world. He's coming off a thriller and his parents basically say, you know what, you need to make the whole family rich. So the Jackson family does the victory tour. Don King somehow insinuates himself and is the promoter. Michael Jackson doesn't really want it. Beyond this tour with his siblings, they squabble, it loses money. There are all these cost overruns, there are, you know hundreds of dancers and the, the set is the size of a football field and basically it's a big money loser as a concert tour and the guy who's financed it is Chuck Sullivan who owned the the new family owned the New England Patriots. They collateralized the tour with Sullivan Stadium. Basically, the tour loses so much money that the Sullivans have to sell the Patriots. And through uh, a bunch of twists and turns, it ends up with Bob Kraft. And I, I don't think it's a total stretch to say the Patriots dynasty may never have happened if uh, Michael Jackson's <laughs> victory tour had been more of a success.
2: I mean, it is amazing to to think about it. And, you know, it, it brings us to, I think, one of the most fascinating sort of elements of this book, that while it is a, a sports book and in some ways, and you are the executive editor of Sports Illustrated, this is really a book about the culture in in many ways and and the economic culture of 1984 and you alluded to it uh, at the top of the conversation you know we're in the midst of the Reagan era but sports become intertwined in, into our lives in a in a new and different way it feels like john you know beyond sort of just something we watch but sort of integrate themselves into our you know our, our very beings and certainly our our economic beings is, is that something that that you sort of found as you were going through this
3: Absolutely, and and again, it's sort of these forces of well, you, you've got cable now, you've yeah. got a network devoted entirely to sports. I don't have to wait till, you know, the, the game of the week or Monday Night Football. I, I can watch sports twenty four seven on this new network called ESPN. And I think athletes were realizing just how much economic power they had. And if you, if you're Michael Jordan and you're this young up and coming player and you're exciting and you just won a gold medal and you've got a big smile and you're in a big media market. There's a lot of money on the table that you can be making beyond the $560,000 that your rookie contract with the Bulls entitled you to.
2: So as we uh, wrap up here, John, just one last thing. Got to ask you about tennis because we get to visit with you uh, often at the U.S. Open. Hopefully we'll get to do that again this year as the world reopens. You know, 1984 was a big year for tennis, but fast forward to 2021, What's the state of, of tennis as you look at it? We're coming out of the French Open now. We're looking ahead to Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. It feels like we're at a, a pretty seminal moment in, in the game across both the men's and the women's game.
3: Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean, you know, t- tennis is like this this global business that is not killing it in the U.S. right now, but I think it's pretty healthy globally. It's a strange time in the sense that you have these four Absolutely dominant players. I mean, think about this. There, there are 40 majors played every year. I mean, every decade, right? For Four a year. And uh, Djokovic has 19. Nadal has 20. Federer has 20. Serena Williams has 23. Um, so you've got more than, than 80 major titles among four players. Wow. And they're not going to play forever. And I think tennis is sort of, you know, c- celebrate these four titans. But I think there's also a bit of, like, what do we do for an encore? So it's it's a transition time for tennis um you know it's not, not it's very well positioned globally I mean Naomi Osaka is highest paid female athlete in the world um you know Roger Federer makes more than 100 million dollars all in so in, in some ways it's very healthy but I do think um it's got to figure out if it's a global sport it's played everywhere the days of one country dominating are over mm-hmm. you know it's it's very different than it was in 1984 when you had all these Americans but I do think the big challenge for tennis is What are we going to do when these four stars finally exit the stage?
2: Yeah, well, a big question. We know we'll be talking to you uh, as that story goes on. In the meantime, congratulations on the book. It's terrific. Glory Days, the Summer of 1984, and the 90 Days that Changed Sports and Culture Forever. The author, of course, John Wertheim. He's the executive editor of Sports (laughs) Illustrated and a senior writer. One of the most prolific guys out there. Also, follow him on Twitter. He's terrific to get the zeitgeist of what's going on. John, really, really good to catch up with you, and congrats on the book.
3: Thanks again, and uh, we'll, we'll see you guys at the U.S. Open. All right. Thanks a lot.
2: All
1: right. <laughs>
3: thanks, John. Thanks.
1: Thank you, John. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports, and I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at LynchyWCVB,
2: and I'm Jason Kelly. Find me at Jason Kelly News. We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, talking about the world of money and sports. Join us again at the end of the week. We're going to catch up with Pete Bavakwa. He is the chairman of the NBC Sports Group.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online wherever you get your podcasts.